0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you here this morning. I want to welcome you to Northern Hills Church. Uh, We are excited you're here. If this is your first time here visiting us in person or visiting us online, we definitely hope it's not your last time. Uh, We are excited because we're getting ready to kick off a new teaching series called Because I Said So. Because I Said So. It's the best parenting advice going. All right? It's, It's truly the best parenting advice going. I promised myself that I would never say it. My mom used to always say it to me because I said so, because I said so. And I told myself, I'm never going to do that when I have kids. And then I had kids. (laughs) And it's one of the cross-generational ways to parent. I find myself saying that from time to time. I'm sure my kids hear it more often than I say it. Um, uh, Saying how much I do say it. (laughs) Here's the deal, we wanted to have a conversation for this entire teaching series. The goal was to have a conversation not only with parents. But with grandparents, with uncles, with aunts, with every kind of individual that is looking to influence or or feels maybe the weight of the responsibility of raising up a young person, okay. And many of us are aspiring parents. You're going to be future parents online or in this room. And some of you are coaches. Some of you are a teacher in some form or another. Many of us uh, work with kids maybe in children's ministry or serve on a student ministry. And so the reality is if we look at each of our lives, chances are everyone in this room has impact on somebody. Everyone online has the impact in some young person's life in some form or another. And that's why we believe this teaching series, we trust the Lord to speak into this teaching series for each of us, no matter where we are in our current stage of life. Now, many of us have heard the saying, the days are long and the years are short, right? We've heard that statement. And we know that to be true, actually, for our lives, I think. In fact, I can think back to my middle school years, and maybe it was junior high when you went, uh, whatever it was called at the time. It was middle school, that's what it was called when I went. I can remember those formative years. In my mind, I thought, you know what, when it comes to raising my own kids, when it comes to having my own children, I have forever to live. I have forever to live. It's going to be a long time before I get there. And so I will, of course, gain wisdom. I'll become wise. I'll be able to discern all the things I need to know once that time comes. That was in middle school. And now I have a middle schooler. Now I have a middle schooler and the years were short. (laughs) I'm starting to ask myself questions for that middle schooler. Did I set her up for high school well? Because high school is going to be this whole new thing. She's the top of her class right now, but in her high school years, it's going to be this whole new gambit of situations, of circumstances, maybe of problems. Have I told her everything that she needs to know? Did I prepare her for life? And the answer to all those questions are no, (laughs) I didn't. I, I, I hit some things, hopefully. But I know there's some things that I forgot, some really essential, really important things that maybe I haven't sat down and spent time with when it comes to Elodie's future in those high school years. And it's because it's understandable for all of us. Life gets busy. Parenting life is busy and parenting will just do that to each of us. Now, some of us here are first time fathers or we're first time mothers. Maybe online that fits your story. And I'll never ever forget the panic And panic's probably the most appropriate word that I can come up with. I'll never forget the panic that Jenny and I felt as we were leaving the hospital, as that nurse at the hospital decided to send Jenny and I home. And I was thinking to myself, what are you doing? Like what are you doing sending us home with this little person? Because that's what I was thinking. I'm not sure what you were thinking nurse, why you thought that was a good idea. But I know Jenny and I were like, we were thinking through the whole process, surely one of you are coming home with us, right? You're gonna stay with us and live with us for the next many months. And we're gonna adjust and get this all figured out, right? And I think it was probably during those years that it was the first time that it dawned on me just because I had a parent doesn't necessarily mean I knew anything about parenting. And maybe more appropriately to say, just because I was a kid and I grew up being a kid, doesn't mean I know anything about raising a kid, right? Maybe that's more to the point. Now it's interesting because I was a youth pastor. And I was, I was fortunate enough, honored enough uh, just to be a youth pastor for 12-plus years. It was so awesome being able to partner with parents and be able to be part of the equation in raising these young teenagers uh, to build their worldview around following Jesus Christ. As we got in conversations, as we did camps and missions trips and uh, we spent weekly time together. And I think back to those years now that I have a teenager where did that wisdom go? Because now I want to be able to sit down on someone else's couch so my our youth pastor here Brandon in his office every single day knocking on the door, "Hey man, what's going on here?" And so many of us will remember, we'll remember sitting in that car leaving the hospital, seeing all the hospital staff sort of wave Goodbye to us. With sort of that knowing look on their face too. They Just sort of that nod and the sort of that smile when you're crying and you're fearful. What's going to happen here? Having a panic attack. But they had that knowing look to themselves. And I think they knew what we know now maybe on the other side of it. For those of us that have been parents for a while. And they knew that we'd figure it out. They knew somehow, some way God was just going to work and get that figured out in our life. Now Jenny and I were sponges like many of you are. We were sponges for good parenting advice. Now, whether that came from books or VHSs, yes, there were videos that we would pop in back in the day to watch some of these parenting uh, uh, tools and resources, right? But we would look to have friends around us, experts, you know, right, anything we could get our hands on. And then, of course, we had the advantage of connecting with so many great families within the student ministry as well. Now, of course, we saw some bad examples of parenting, but we also saw parents that had healthy relationships with their teenagers, healthy relationships with their kids. And so we, like many of you that have surrounded yourself with those resources, we wanted to know the game plan. We wanted to know what the map was. How did they get from that car seat somehow to the driver's seat with their young child, now teenager? How did they get there with the relationship just intact? How did they make that happen? What were the things they did? And as we wanted to know that map, we wanted to know how they did it. It drove us to the question that we're going to be asking for this entire teaching series, because that's what it is for us that have you influence with young people. How do we get from there to there, wherever there to there is with relationship intact? How do I keep the relationship intact? That's the question we want to keep answering throughout this teaching series, more than digging into Parenting 101 or 10 tips for good parenting. Because that's the question we want to answer. Nobody undermines the relationship with their young student, with their adult child, nobody undermines that relationship on purpose. But we see a lot of those relationships being undermined, right? But nobody's looking to do that with their teenager, with their adult kids on purpose. And so Jenny and I, it was something over and over and over again. When we saw parents get it right, we just wanted to corner them. For that sage piece of wisdom, for that golden nugget of advice. And generally when we would corner them, they would offer up something to the effect of, well, we just really love our kids. We just try to love our kids well. Well, that's not helpful. I know we're all trying to love our kids well, but I I wanted some more handles to that, right? What's going to allow me to keep the relationship intact? And here's the thing, we knew better. We knew that they knew better. There was something that maybe they weren't articulating, maybe they couldn't verbalize, but they had some habits. They had an approach. It might have been intuitive to to them, but oftentimes we knew they were leaning into something that they had gained through their wisdom over the years. How to keep the relationship intact. And so today I want to talk about this uncomfortable tension that we deal with. To launch us off into this because I said so Parenting series. I just want to talk about the tension of what the real and the ideal look like in parenting. There's tension there and it's uncomfortable for us. The real versus the ideal. And we can come up with tons of examples of what the ideal Jesus following Christian parenting should look like. But then we just have reality. And sometimes that reality just plays out on the car ride to church. That's Check the out. tension, right? Because then we show up at church and it's like, hey, brother, how you doing? I'm good, brother. How are you, right? That's sort of how it plays out. That's the tension we live with. What's real versus what's ideal? What's real versus what's ideal? And it's uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable tension because for many of us, we consider that when it comes to family, when it comes to marriage, even when it comes to our parenting, when it comes to raising just good young people, the ideal is just seemingly out of our reach. It's something that we can't grasp, it's something that's out of sight. And so it's something we put out of our mind. And yet part of my responsibility as a pastor is to come in here on a a weekly, bi-weekly basis and, and give some of those reminders. Some of those reminders that we need to live in the tension. And we need to honestly always look and aspire towards the ideal. See, it's my job to sort of have those feet firmly planted in reality. There's a lot of nuance in a lot of our lives and a lot of unique things to our family dynamics. That's real, that's real life. But how do we point towards the ideal? I think the problem we can get into in the church world sometimes is when we ignore reality, it leaves us or it leaves me at least speaking and teaching in such a way that doesn't consider family dynamics. We can get in the danger of not considering all the nuance that happens in our family. That people, actually people, actual people are really navigating actual circumstances. Real difficult things, real tough things. And so we have to deal with the real. If we don't, it leaves the impression that the message of Jesus has no real effect on my real life. If we don't lean into the real. So to ignore current reality, I, I think it leaves us with more, of that, more or less that static relationship with God. Where it's sort of that stained glass religion and that's removed from our everyday reality. Churches and sermons, they become nothing more of the reminders of something that we can't attain. Something that we can't aspire to or grasp. So for a discussion to be relevant on parenting, we have to take the real into account. And this may come as a shock to you this morning. If you're a Christian, if you're somebody that's been following Jesus and chasing after Jesus for a while, this may come as a shock to you that you should be an under, you should actually have more understanding of what the real verse ideal looks like than any other person. If you follow Jesus Christ, the reality of what's going on in families and in marriages should be second nature to us Christians because there are virtually no good examples of a good family in the entire Bible, of a family to model. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about that? Just in your navigating the scriptures and just reading through those? There's tons of illustrations of real world dysfunction. The Bible's our go-to source for that. But if we really dig into the scriptures, think about it, the first family, and you remember them, Adam and Eve, and their first two kids, Cain and Abel. Do you remember that story? Now sin enters into the world, let's be fair, that's with an Adam and Eve, that's prior to any kids, and that's just on them, right? But then they have children, and immediately this blame game starts taking place, and we don't know much about their children, but to be fair, we know enough, because what we know is that one of their sons murdered his brother. And that's just the beginning of what we see in dysfunctional examples. Joseph's brothers, what did they attempt to do? They attempted to sell him to these band of Egyptian slave traders. And then they didn't even tell their parents about what was going down. They, they made their parents believe that Joseph was dead. King David's firstborn. He was a rapist. And his second son tried to take his dad's job and sleep with his wives. And yes, I said wives, plural. Like dysfunction. Dysfunction. The seventh born of David, Solomon, the king Solomon, the wisest man in the scriptures, was a womanizer in his own right. Just, I promise you, read the Old Testament sometime and you will see a really dark episode of Dr. Phil. That's how family dysfunction plays out. And then the rest is history, right? Because generation to generation, it's sort of been this dysfunction. The Old Testament begins the story, how families are bad. But the Old Testament story deals with what we know, that there's just dysfunction in our world. So the point being is that the church, the people of God, we should grasp this more than anybody. We understand the realities of life. We understand the realities of parenting are difficult. And that's because of the book we look at. That's because of the text we look to guide our life. Because the Bible is full of those examples. But here is where that complex tension hits us. And I trust, again, this can be uncomfortable, but I believe this can be helpful towards us as well. The scriptures, while it shows us the dysfunction that takes place in this broken family dynamic, what's fascinating is the authors of the New Testament also paint this picture of what could be. That's the ideal of what could be and what should be as it relates to family. And that's what makes the Bible good news. That's what makes the scripture such good news for us. Write this note down if you're taking notes. The scripture points us towards the ideal while clearly embracing the real. The scripture points us towards the ideal while clearly embracing the real. And that's tension. And when we think about it, if we were to remove Ideal from the equation. I asked us just to live in reality and make sure that we make sure that the real conversation is part of the conversation in our faith. But if we were to remove the ideal from the situation, I think what it does is it removes the ideal from this family equation. And that's not just for us, that's for the next generation. It only ensures that the next generation, it'll be out of reach for them as well if it's out of reach for us. I don't think that's what the Lord wants for us. Part of our responsibility as parents and grandparents, as those aunts and uncles, those coaches and teachers, is that we look to give our kids and our grandkids, our nephews and nieces, young people, something to aim for, an ideal to shoot for, something to live for. More importantly, something that they can decide towards. What is their ideal captured in? Now, when it comes to living and teaching that sort of messy middle, navigating the tension of what's real and what's ideal, Jesus did this so well. We have someone to look to because Jesus did, the, he was the master at this. He navigated this during his entire ministry, the tension between real and ideal. And here's, a, here's the deal, <laughs> I'm rhyming. He, he clung to that tension. He didn't dismiss it. He didn't abandon it. He didn't push it to the wayside because it was uncomfortable. Think of the gospel. The gospel doesn't begin with once upon a time in a perfectly ordered world, which everything, where everyone always did what was right. No, the gospel, Christianity, is founded on, here's how the Apostle Paul puts it, in 1 Corinthians 15:3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Did you notice that? That the gospel assumes sin. It assumes sin. It's all pointing towards the ideal, but Christ shows up in this perfectly disordered world where the ideal might seem out of reach. But for everyone, the gospel of the good news, John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. Was that the Garden of Eden world? Or did God love our world, this world, a broken, imperfect, less than ideal world? See the tension between the real and the ideal, this is embedded within, I think every one of, single one of Jesus' parables when you read them, the kingdom of God is like, and then you would have his disciples, they would say something, yeah, but, but this isn't the kingdom of God. And then Jesus would do something in, in some frame or another, smiling and saying, well, come to me, all you weary. Come to me, all you burdened and heavy laden. I will, I will give you rest. You'll find rest for your souls. And so while Jesus is navigating the reality of people who were weary, who were heavy laden, who were burdened and just needing rest, then he would pivot. He would pivot towards something that pointed towards the ideal. I'll give you an example. Take Adultery. As an example, this is fascinating how how Jesus just, he's the master at this. Matthew 5.27, you've heard the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery. Which his audience would have said at that point, yes, we know the scriptures. You must not commit adultery. Yes, we've heard that. But here's the pivot then. Jesus in verse 28, but I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I think what he would say. He'd say, yeah, you've heard that part, (laughs) but this is the new covenant. This is the new thing that I'm going to dig in and dig down deep. And imagine where his audience would have been. Oh, well, we've heard the other thing you said, but this one, don't say that, Jesus. Because that makes me feel bad about myself. That makes us feel bad about ourselves. So don't say those kinds of things anymore. It's unrealistic, Jesus. You can't say things like that because they don't deal in reality and yet Jesus sat in that tension because he's consistently pointing towards something that's beyond this lowest common denominator. He's pointing towards the ideal. He gives this to people in his audience and he gives them something and he gives us something to aspire to. So because he's the master at riding the tension bus, we also get to see him bump into people who fell short all the time. And he didn't condemn those people who fell short. In fact, Jesus condemned the condemners and then he would die For the condemned and the condemners. That's just Jesus Christ. He turns up the grace instead of lowering the standard. So he redefines adultery, and what does he do? He makes everyone, everyone, an adulterer. And then he pays the price for their adultery. This is beautiful how Jesus does the scripture and the life of Christ consistently point us towards the ideal. It's all while embracing reality, the real life. And here's the fascinating thing. When you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, I love John. I love how John who knew Jesus so well, one of the favorite things that he says about the Son of God, and keep this in mind, he's looking back at his time with Jesus. He's, have, he's been able to watch him deal with real people who are dealing with real life situations. And it was just remarkable for him to watch Jesus. He makes this claim day in and day out. Jesus is pointing towards God's ideal while embracing this reality of what people are just walking through and living through. And this older man now who's looking back talks about the son of God. Here's how John summarizes it in verse 14 of chapter 1, the book of John. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word, that's speaking of God. And he says, God came to live with us. God became this flesh and he camped out with us. He he dwelt with us. He didn't send more rules and regulations. He became one of us. He navigated our reality with us. And he showed us in human form as he moved with us. And then John goes, continues to say, and we've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son. Now, Old Testament scholars, Jewish scholars, they would have been like, no, you haven't. You haven't seen the glory of God. No one can see the glory and live. And John's just, hey, I'm just telling my story. I'm just, here's what I saw. I'm telling you what I saw. We saw the glory and this guy, this, the son of God who came from the Father. And then John's next phrase, the next phrase I think summarizes so much of living in this tension. And who I want to be as a person, who I want to be as a Christian and who I want to be as a parent. And he says, continuing in verse 14, who came from the Father, speaking of Jesus, full of what? Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. That's how Jesus navigated the tension of the real and the ideal. He was full of grace and truth. Now, here's the deal. My, My close friends that know me really well, they'll tell me I'm full of it. They'll tell me I'm full of it. But what I want them to know about my life is that I'm full of grace and truth, that I'm full of grace and truth. I want that to be known about my life. I want my daughter and my son to know that about their father and Jesus, he wasn't just this balance of it. He was fully grace. He was fully truth, both double doses of reality. Write this down as it relates to grace and truth. I think this is going to help us as we parent. Grace and truth. Jesus is never going to dumb down truth to make us feel better. And he'll never turn down grace. Especially when we need it most. You want to talk about a parenting 101 as we look eyes on Jesus, hearts on Jesus. Jesus never dumbs down truth to make us feel better. And he's never going to turn down grace, especially when we need it most. here's what I've come to learn about grace and truth. Many of us grew up on different sides of it. And it's formed how we adult. It's formed how we parent our young people, right? Some of us grew up in large truth atmospheres. The truth reigned over everything. And so what we learned over time is that truth without grace, it creates pretenders, it creates posers, maybe even hypocrites. We see this in the religious leaders of Jesus' day, right? But many of us grew up on the other side. We never heard truth. We grew up in very large grace atmospheres. But we never heard truth spoken to us. And so while, while grace with, without truth creates kind of, uh, or excuse me, while truth without grace can, can build pretenders and hypocrites, I believe also if you grew up in that grace atmosphere, grace without truth is going to create this kind of permissive faith. This kind of, you know what, you do what you do. And I'm going to do what I do. And ultimately a permissive kind version kind of faith is going to hurt everybody in the end. But here's the deal, catch this. If you pair grace and truth, and we do that to the fullest ability that we can, not as Christ, perfection, but as letting that be our bar, grace and truth paired together, that's powerful. That is so powerful, friends. Grace and truth is personified, it's illustrated by Jesus Christ. And that's who we look to. So back to parenting for a minute. I just want to get uncomfortably specific. The ideal to raise our kids, to set them up for future success, to break generational ties, and to to have to give them the best chance. The ideal, the ideal is gonna start with us. That's painfully specific. It's gonna start with us, the parents. It always starts with parents. Get this, communities don't raise children, parents do. And that may sound a little odd to you because you're like, wait a minute, hold on, hold the fort. I've heard Northern Hills talk a lot about partnering with parents. Yes, absolutely. Partner is the key word within that. Communities are always part of the context in raising children, but it starts with parents. And it's so important because some of you need to be celebrated. Some of you have not grown up in a culture that really led to the values you wanted as a family. And you have done everything you can to fight to be in those environments. You've done everything you can to parent in such a way that that leans toward your values. And so you wanna raise your kids in communities that affirm those values, even though your particular situation didn't align with that. And so well done on you because you've done that as a parent. And see, that's why we say at Northern Hills so much, we do, we wanna partner with parents. We're creating, we're looking to create as best as God is leading and as we're following, we're looking to create that environment that partners with families really well when it comes to our children's ministry and our student ministry, because we, like, like you, we want better for your kids. And that's because you want better for your kids. That's good parenting. And that's what we wanna partner with, but let's not skew it. Let's be reminded, let's lean into that tension that partnering means partnering, but raising children, it's not going to fall on a building, it's not going to fall on the people of God. God has assigned us to parent our kids. And every once in a while, I think we need to be coaxed back into that ideal, that ideal of, well, what, what, what does God want me to do next? What am I looking to aspire to? And so that's why I think the conversation in dealing with reality (laughs) and dealing with this ideal thought, I think we'd, we'd miss the mark if we didn't address marriages as well. And perhaps the best parenting tool of all, the best gift that we can give our young people, are marriages to look towards, healthy marriages to look towards. And I'm gonna be honest, for some of us in the room, some of us watching online, that was the minute you just dropped your pen, stopped taking notes, because you're like, oh, great. Where's pastor gonna go with this one? See, for some of us, the healthy marriage part of the pairing equation, that feels like bad news for some of us. It's where the enemy's attacked us. We feel like that's discouraging news because it's really out of reach. A healthy marriage feels out of reach. And that can be so discouraging. There's people I've come into contact with had conversations with, (laughs) it tempted me to even skip over this part, to not speak to that being the ideal because it'd just be easier to live with marriage out of the conversation of parenting. And for years, I think what we've been experiencing is culture looking to do that. There's certain things in our circles that are looking to divorce parenting from marriage. And honestly, the parenting conversation, of course, it's easier. Of course, it's more politically correct if we just set aside the notion of the nuclear family. It's a word we don't use often um, anymore is this nuclear family. And the nuclear family is simply a father and a mother and the children all living together under one roof. And here in my heart, I know it'd be easier to isolate that topic when it comes to parenting, never addressing our marriages. But I hope you know my heart. I hope you know that I am not coming down on any one of us. We're, we're all broken people. We all have different stories. There's so much nuance to the family dynamic. But when we isolate healthy marriages and parenting, we steal something valuable from our next generation. When we isolate that, we steal something so valuable from our children and from our grandchildren. So what we do when we remove that, it's not even to remove the bullseye, it's to remove the target altogether. I believe Christ wants so much more for us when it comes to our parenting, that he wants to see that marriages matter and any attempt to downplay the importance of marriage, it downplays our role within that. And that's just misguided at the end of the day because it robs our children. What do our young people need to see when it looks at our marriages? They need to see that we're striving to chase after Jesus, eyes and hearts fixed on Jesus. And if you're divorced, or if you have a blended family, do I still believe in all my heart that you have the power to point your kids, our young people towards the ideal? Absolutely I do. In the context that you live in right now, What is God asking each of us as we strive towards the ideal? And I get it. Our society today and decisions we've made, that's put maybe this uncomfortable tension in our lives. And so it feels out of reach for us, but does it have to be out of reach for our kids? I think we want better. And if we look to the master at this, I think he'll meet us because grace and truth, Jesus will never dumb down truth to make us feel better, but he'll never turn down grace, especially when we need it most. That's how we navigate what's real. And that's how we still point to the ideal to instill this dream in their hearts and their minds of the next generation to, to steal that dream for our kids. That would be about us. And that would be about us trying to remove the uh, tension or maybe even to resolve the tension and that's to lose something as well. Look, it was gonna be tempting for this entire series just to give two examples, five examples, whatever of Parenting 101, that's safer and easier, but it would be irresponsible for us to not dig in because our future of our young people matters so much. It would lose this idea to cast this compelling vision for them and what they could be, what they should be, regardless of where our lives have taken us. And so let's just link arms. And when it comes to family, let's not look to resolve the tension. Let's sit in it. Let's just sit in it. Maybe be a little uncomfortable. Eyes and hearts fixed on Jesus because he made his dwelling among us, despite where we were with all the grace and all the truth we need to cling to. Would you pray with me? Father, yeah, we just, Lord, we open up our hearts this morning to just sit in that tension Or there's a lot of ideals that seem so far out of reach, but God, we know that you did not remove yourself from reality just to point towards that. You sat in reality with each of us. You sit in reality with each of us. And then say, I have something better. I have something for your parenting. I have something for your marriage. I have something for your life that's just going to be better. Christ, thank you that your way is always better. And so Lord, we collectively come together during this series and we ask that you would just work on our hearts, change our minds, And that we would run to you, Jesus. That we would run to you when it comes to running after our young people. Lord, have your way. I pray these things in your great name. Amen. Thanks for checking out this week's message. If you'd like to get involved here at Northern Hills, check out our website at inhills.org. Or download the Northern Hills app. We hope to see you again soon.